Good morning, my name is Casey Cease, and I have the joy of serving as a pastor of Preaching and Vision here at Christ Community Church. And um, if you're new or visiting with us or have only been here a few, time, uh, a few times, last week, we, Dr. Vanderkay ended our marriage series, um, Better Together. Typically here, the majority of our diet and preaching on Sunday mornings are books of the Bible. We love preaching through books of the Bible, but occasionally we break it up and go through topical but biblical series. And so this morning we're launching into a new series in the Old Testament called, uh, out of the book of Jonah. Jonah is one of the 12 minor prophets. Now, I want you to understand minor prophets doesn't mean like minor leagues. Like you don't have like Isaiah in the major leagues and Jonah in the minor leagues. Um, Jonah meaning a minor prophet, all minor prophet means is a shorter uh, of the prophets in the prophetic literature of the scripture. We call it the Old Testament in Christianity because we believe in the Old and New Testament. If you're talking to a Jewish friend, um, the appropriate word is the Tanakh. You can say that with me if you like. Tanakh. Go ahead. Try it. Feels good. Tanakh. Right. It, it's, it's the corpus of the Old Testament, and it just so happens around AD 100 when they finalized the uh, Old Testament or the Tanakh that um, the church actually said, yes, we agree. Those are the inspired and errant word of God, and, and we, we hold to those as well because we believe those teach towards the truths about Jesus as Messiah. And so we look at the Old Testament as equal and just as powerful as the New Testament Scripture. And so here at Christ Community Church, we preach from the Old Testament, and we preach from the New Testament. So we'll be in Jonah, and over the summer we'll go through First Peter, and then we'll do a series on generosity, and so I'll give you the dates for that so you can miss if you'd like. Um, a few of you laugh, some of you are uncomfortable, it's okay. Um, and then after that we're going to launch into Exodus, uh, and go through Exodus for a while and see Christ uh, pointed to from the Old Testament there. And so really excited about the upcoming preaching schedule. So if you have your Bible, open with me to Jonah. It's towards the end of the Old Testament, a little past right of the middle of your Bible. It's after Obadiah, before Micah. And so we find Jonah. Now, a lot of people, Jonah is one of the more popular uh, Old Testament stories, right? And we love teaching our kids about Jonah by talking about the big fish and arguing if it's, a, if it's a fish or if it's a sperm well or whatever it is. We love fighting about those things. But one thing we need to understand is that Jonah wasn't necessarily a good dude. Like, he's not like a hero of the Old Testament that we want to align our lives with. In fact, what we know of Jonah, found in 2 Kings, when he is uh, prophesying to Jeroboam II, is that actually Jonah um, prophesied incorrectly. Uh, Jeroboam II was a, an evil king. He did not find favor in the Lord's sight. And uh, uh, Jonah went and, te- and prophesied that um, God was going to bless and flourish Israel under his rule, which was actually incorrect. And so the prophet Amos came and cleared all that up and told him, you better repent, otherwise you're going to pay for it. And so Jonah doesn't have like a huge positive track record. And so you might be wondering, well, why in the world is Jonah in the Bible? And why in the world would, would Pastor Casey and the team spend time teaching through Jonah? Well, one of the values that we have here, one of the the key points of our vision for 2020 is that we are broken for the lost in our community, in our state, in our nation, and around the world. And that's what we hope to become. I I, want to be honest with you, I'm not fully there yet. I have pockets of compassion and moments of compassion for people who are far from God, but I'm not yet where I hope to be in view of God's mercy towards me, towards us, towards his church. I don't yet have that deep brokenness yet. But Christ Community Church exists to glorify God by making followers of Jesus Christ who are growing and multiplying. We believe that discipleship occurs best in the context of authentic community. And so as we read Jonah, as we see the story, we see God's unrelenting passion, not only for us, but also for them out there. 
that God isn't just for those who are in his church. He is passionately pursuing his elect from all peoples. And so we have to see God's heart and begin to love what God loves. That's part of discipleship. Discipleship isn't becoming more like Casey or Stephanie or Jen Patterson or Brent Stanfield or anything like that. Discipleship is being conformed more and more to the image of Christ and then expressing that imagery through the way God uniquely called us and wired us to express it. And so as we read through Jonah, we're not reading a hero. We're reading as an example to the church and to those who yet are yet to believe of God's consistent faithfulness and passion for his people. And this morning as we break into uh, Jonah chapter 1, I hope that we begin enjoying God more. But more than that, I don't want you to think about man that's bad for him. I hope that you'll allow God through his word to speak to you, to challenge you, to refresh you, and maybe for some of you to save you. To save you from sin to life eternal with Jesus Christ himself, because that's the ultimate prize. When we say lost, we're not saying that in a demeaning way. We're saying it in a compassionate way because all of us at one time were lost and far from God. But God in his kindness through his son, Jesus Christ, rescues us. And we believe he's a rescuing God going after his people throughout the world. Jonah was captured and existed somewhere um, between the mid-8th century um, currently, that time, the Assyrian Empire in Assyria, um, in, in specifically Nineveh, was now near modern-day Mosul, Iraq. And we have, uh, we have this, this messenger of God being sent to these people who were to become people of God, but he did not want to go. And so we see this tension, we see this battle, we see this disobedience, we see this ongoing struggle, we see sin, we see repentance in spite of the prophet. And so there's a lot of things in this book that should bring and usher in conviction, but also bring in and usher in hope. So if you will, we're going to be in Jonah chapter 1, all verses today. And the main thing I want us to draw and see through this, it's easy to talk about Jonah and our failure, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But what I want us to learn about God as we see his resolve is that God is passionately committed to fulfilling his promise to bring salvation to all nations. God is passionately committed to fulfilling his promise to bring salvation to all nations. As God made a covenant with themselves, with himself, with uh, Abraham, he made a, a promise that through his offspring they would become a blessing to all nations. And so we see through this story of this prophet that God intends, whether his people are willing or not, to fulfill that promise and to pursue his people from all nations. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Amittai, oddly enough, his father's name means truth or truth-telling, which is a fitting name or descriptor for a prophet, Jonah of the truth-teller or Jonah of the truth. Yet Jonah, when commanded by God, blatantly went the opposite direction. Now, here in Texas, we're more passive-aggressive, right? And so we put off obedience a little bit more kindly. Let me pray about that. I'm not sensing the Lord's direction on that. I don't feel a peace about that. We, we have kind of these sayings that we, we church it up, 
to mask our disobedience. Am I the only one? You're laughing because you're like, yeah, you are. No, I'm kidding. But we mask our disobedience. Well, let me, I got to pray about it. I got to see what God's doing. But, but it says very clearly, God spoke to him and says, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it. So go to an enemy nation and tell the people they need to repent, is what God's telling Jonah to do. Go to your enemies and tell them to repent. It's like God telling you to grab a parachute, catch a flight, hop down into ISIS, and tell them to repent. So before we're too hard on Jonah, we could see why his biases and maybe his fear and maybe his unbelief would provoke that. But it's interesting how the author captures what the consequence is. And so the question I would have running in my mind, if I were you hearing this, that I've had in my mind the last several weeks as I've been preparing the series, is do I want the presence of God or do I want the comfort of right now? Do I want to experience God's presence or do I just want God's benefits? You see, in our culture, we live in a culture that stipulates we love God as long as we get his quote-unquote blessings, stuff, health, wealth, favor. We want his blessings, the benefits of God, but we're okay to pass on the presence of God. I fall into that trap. I enjoy the benefits of God. I enjoy the blessings of God. I enjoy the comfort of God. I enjoy the forgiveness of God. I enjoy the truth of God until it is inconvenient. But it's very, it says it multiple times. He fled from the presence of the Lord. And again, at the end of verse 3, he went with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. So the first thing we can see here is that God's presence is experienced through obedience to his will. The greatest gift that we get from God is God. God is the prize. He is the gift. When we evangelize or tell people about Jesus, it's because they do not have access to God because their sin separates them. And so when we tell them about the life, death, and resurrection of King Jesus, we then invite them to turn from that sin and to turn to life. Now I can say this objectively to you. Would you rather live your life, a hard life, in the presence and power of God, or would you rather live your life in the current comfort of convenience and now? Now, of course we know the right answer, Christians, right? But as I was going through this last several weeks, looking into my own soul and being exposed by God's Spirit and His Word, I say I want His presence, but many times I structure my life for comfort. And I church it up with a lot of good things. And I excuse my disobedience to walk next door and talk to my neighbor or to the neighbors behind me and talk to them and build relationship or shy away from the opportunity to share the gospel with people. And what's crazy is I've shared the gospel with people before and God has saved them. And I'm still afraid. I'm still concerned about their opinion. I'm still concerned about what they think. I'm still afraid. And so it's easier to flee from the presence of God 
and bank upon the mercy of God rather than to walk in the presence of God and be more consumed by the fear of God than the fear of man. So my prayer for us over these next four weeks is that the Lord would continue to work in undoing in us that we would see through the lenses of his truth about our souls and the lives of those around us who are far from God and that it would matter. Because the presence of God is experienced through obedience. Now, this is what's different between obedience in faith and legalism. Legalism says we must work and do and continue to do these things to maintain God's salvation. The issue of obedience is when God has saved us, we're now liberated from the bondage of sin, which leads to death, and we're now liberated and freed and empowered by his spirit and guided by his word to obey. And so obedience now comes from the source not of earning or maintaining, but of gratitude, worship. And so our obedience or disobedience becomes an issue of worship, not of salvation. Because we have been saved, we're able to produce works that are in keeping with our salvation. But Jonah here, knowing God, having heard the voice of God, being told by God, go to this place. And notice here in the scripture, to be fair to Jonah, it doesn't say, and they will repent. He just says, go. Go to this place, in the land of Assyria, to this major city of Nineveh, and call out against it. So Jonah, no shame in his game, fled. But he wasn't just fleeing a calling, he's fleeing the presence of God. And God's presence is experienced through obedience to his will. So in those hard things that you know the Lord is calling you to do, He's inviting you to more of himself. He's inviting you to enjoy him more, not less. He's not calling you to hard things for bad, but he's calling you to hard things for more good. And it may not be directly for you at all. But let me just assure us that being in God's presence is far better than being out of it. And so Jonah loaded the ship and he went. And some commentators say that Jonah pretty much chartered the whole thing, which is pretty expensive. So he, he put a lot of time and investment in getting a vehicle to flee from God. Interesting verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up doesn't say the Lord allowed. I went and checked many translations, and I even went back to the Hebrew. Thank God for software. The Lord caused, the Lord hurled upon the sea this great storm, this great disruption, and it was so violent that it was destroying the ship. Can God cause tragedy? Can he? Because many of us want to give God a pass, saying, well, God, God doesn't do anything like that. God allows it, but he, he, we preach a God who has his hands tied. Yet in God's justice, he would be completely right to destroy everyone because of sin. Yet in God's mercy, he withholds that wrath. 
But in moments, he does bring discipline. He does bring punishment. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. So then you have these mariners, these seafarers, these people who are used to working a boat who don't know God. Look how they respond. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. So let me give you a context of this polytheistic, meaning many God, theology that these guys had. They didn't believe in repentance. They just believed in appeasing these fly-off-the-handle, irrational gods. Right? They didn't have a framework or context of a holy and righteous and perfect God who desires obedience and faith and who punishes sin. That's not what they were doing. When they are throwing stuff over, partly it was to keep them from sinking, but partly is they had no grid by which to please their God. They had no identity of which God was causing the storm. They believed it was a divine storm, and so they started throwing offerings of their stuff into the ocean trying to please the God. They didn't know which God it was, but they acknowledged there was a God and that, that God was acting like a temper tantrum child. Yet they go, but Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. In the New Testament, we see of a man who is also a prophet of God, asleep during the midst of a storm. And we see how he responded when they awoken him. Jesus was woken up and rebuked his disciples for the lack of faith. He rebuked the wind and the waves, and they stopped immediately. And as we'll see throughout this entire book, that Jesus is the better Jonah. But Jonah was fast asleep, and so the captain came to him and said, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give thought to us that we may not perish. Hey, all hands on deck here, man. Whatever God is your God, call out to that God, and let's get it fixed. Let's, let, let's stop this storm. Let's, let's figure this thing out. I mean, they were reaching for everything. And when life is coming undone, we have a tendency to act like these godless mariners. When life is coming undone and we're in the storms of life, rather than begin with repentance, we begin looking for solutions. And we begin grabbing for our idols, our false gods that we once worshipped and hoped in. And so as the storm was raging on and as the captain was calling out, he woke Jonah and said, call out to your God. Verse 7, and they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and guess what? Any idea who it fell upon? And the lot fell upon Jonah. In the Psalms, it talks about how the Lord is sovereign over the casting of lots. It doesn't mean we go to Vegas and start playing dice. But he's sovereign over the casting of lots. And it fell and revealed and exposed Jonah. A lot is different forms, shapes, rocks, jewels, whatever that they take together and they form. And the one that belongs to you, if it's the one that shows up, it's you. So the Lord caused a storm. The Lord provisionally exposed through a lot. So the mariners were obviously upset and scared. And they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? 
And where do you come from? What is your country? And what, of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. He told them. Notice he left out, I'm a prophet. He abandoned his vocation. He hid his vocation. But he at least said who he was. I'm a Hebrew. I belong to the God. And I fear this God. I know it's him who made all of this. He made the earth and he made the sea. He controls it all. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? It's amazing when these non-believing people offer more clarity and conviction than the prophet of God himself who heard the word of God. It's interesting to me when people who I know who spend a lot of time in the word of God and studying the things of God, their hearts become harder towards God rather than softer, that the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit are less evident than more evident. And I've gone through seasons in my life where that's been true, where there's not as much love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, and self-control. But rather there's more arrogance and pride and puffing up. And so Jonah knew God, yet these men were responding more appropriately than Jonah himself. And let me build that case a little bit further. They asked him, what, what have you done? And then Jonah said to them, or, and then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down? For the sea grew more and more temp, uh, tempest, tempestuous. It's a hard word, tempestuous. More rowdy. And he said to them, look what he says to him. And at first you can say, like, what a guy looking to sacrifice himself. He didn't have an Uber for a big fish. He had no promise of any rescue. Look what he said. Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. He's saying, kill me. I'm the one that caused this. The way you solve it is by putting me to death. Kill me. Now you might be thinking, what a guy. Man, this dude is coming in saying, hey, it's my fault. I bear all responsibility. Kill me. But if you think about it, he's not doing an obedient, God-honoring thing. If he was being obedient, he would say, we need to repent before God. We need to call out to God in his mercy because he knew the character and person of God. Yet instead of saying, I'm going to run back to the presence of God, he says, I want to be hurled away from it. He wanted to run further. He said, put me to death. It'll solve your problem. It'll keep me from having to run back to God. Kill me. I guess sometimes there's a fine line between courageous and cowardly. But rather than saying what he knew, saying, call out to God, the God of the heavens and the earth, the God who created all things, ask for his mercy and he will provide it. See, Jesus, the good and better Jonah, cried out to God and immediately the wave stopped as a declaration and evidence to his disciples of the truth of God. Yet Jonah said, I want to go further away. Send me to death. Send me to Sheol. Kill me. But these guys, oddly enough, not looking to just save their own skin, it says, nevertheless, these men rowed hard to get back to dry land. So they were trying to go back to the land. They were, they were rowing. They, they were ignoring Jonah and saying, well, that might be the last resort, but we don't want to kill this guy. And, and these unbelieving men start rowing the boat trying to get back to dry land. Nevertheless, men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. 
Therefore they called out to the Lord. They called out to the true God. They did. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us his innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. They repent. They ask God, God, in your mercy, if this is what you want, because the prophet told them, the guy who knew God, throw me into the sea. So they were acting, yet they, they sensed that that may not be the best course of action, but they knew no other way. And so they cry out to God as unbelieving people in faith. Verse 15, so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from his raging. Their obedience and faith, and then their compliance with Jonah's call, they threw him out to the sea. It says in verse 16, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. They took God, the God of creation, the God of redemption, the holy God, they took him very seriously. They acknowledged that death is required for forgiveness from a holy God. And they made sacrifice and they made promises to God. That was their response. The Lord had brought salvation on that boat when his prophet was running away from him. In spite of his prophet, God was still bringing a message of restoration and redemption. And he would have been right to allow Jonah to go out into the sea and to be killed. But we have to understand the second thing that we see here is that God's correction is meant to lead to repentance. The wrath of God ultimately is an invitation to repentance. I'm very careful when pastoring and shepherding people through hard seasons to speak on behalf of God if I'm not certain what God is doing. And so what I do and what I would encourage you to do as you're giving hope to other people is to focus on what we know are, is true and focus on the facts. God is good. God is faithful. God is constant. God is gracious. God is full of wrath, but he extends mercy. God gave his only son for those who do believe in him will not perish apart from God, but have life with God. Life with God is better than life here itself. So those are some key promises that we can hold on to as we face these storms of life. At the same time, I do believe the Lord does bring about hardship for his people as an invitation for repentance and dependence on him. In the fall of 1999, I had uh, been saved for a few years. I had done two summers worth of internships um, in student ministry, had been vol volunteering in student ministry, and I, uh, the, summer, uh, the spring of 1998, I stepped away from doing any form of ministry to go headlong into school, into college. And I thought I was going to be an attorney just like my dad. My dad's dad's an attorney, so I thought, I'm going to get in the family business. And here's the deal I made with God at the time. God, I'll go into, I'll go into ministry when I can do so for free. And so I'm going to go make, you know, 20 million bucks, and then I'll pay for myself to be a pastor, so you won't have to worry about that. Seemed like a bargain on both ways. And in that fall, um, a lot of mercy happened. I began to struggle significantly with anxiety and depression. I began to struggle with my calling and my identity. I began to struggle 
in my relationship with my fiance, Stephanie. I would have crippling anxiety. I started getting uh, retrained the following year in um, learning how to read because I was ADHD and dyslexic but non-diagnosed. So that was brought to the surface. And it just kept, it kept pressing. And during that time, I learned more about the faithfulness of God and the truth of God's word and repentance and messing up and repentance and messing up and then repentance and grace upon grace upon grace. In the fall of 2000, I surrendered to the call of full-time ministry. I didn't have all the questions answered. I didn't know what all that looked like. I knew that I wasn't wired like all my friends in ministry, but I wanted to be faithful to God. And while still to this day, at times, I go through seasons struggling with anxiety and depression, by and large, it lifted. Whether the Lord caused it or allowed it, I'm grateful. We live in a culture that avoids discomfort and avoids storms. But it seems to me throughout Scripture that God enjoys meeting with us most when we're at our limit and cannot any longer. So if you're in a storm right now, the first thing I would tell you to do is repent. God, I'm hoping in many other things before you. Help me to trust you with my finances, with my marriage, with my relationships, with my addictions, with whatever is, is burdening you, with your calling. God, it's yours. I'd rather go through anxiety in the presence of God than outside of the presence of God. I'd rather go through marital struggles in the presence of God than outside of the presence of God. I'd rather have my marriage heal from an affair in the presence of God than outside of the presence of God. And as we press in and as we hope in God's faithfulness, we can see as followers of Jesus that God's correction and God's pressing isn't his punishment meant to condemn, for Christ took upon the cross the condemnation for us all. But rather in that pressing, there's an invitation for us to cry out to the one who is able and willing to rescue and restore And maybe your suffering might just be the evidence and illustration that God will use to provoke an unbelieving world around us to faith in Jesus. For as Jonah, even in his rebellion, said, go ahead and kill me, at least you'll be fine. From that moment, at the calming of the sea, these men who were godless began to fear God. And then we get to verse 17, which people love to fight about. And, and hear me, you're going to be tempted to like argue through this in your mind because you're like, this other stuff is too close to home, but I can argue about a big fish. Let's focus on the fish. Let's not focus on me. Let's not focus on Jonah or the lost people or God's will. Let's focus on the fish. I want to call you away from that. Because there's a greater fish out there called death. And that death only has one remedy to be released from it which is Jesus himself. Verse 17. And the Lord appointed, sovereign over all creation, appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. All large sea animals were identified by the same Hebrew word, which we translate big fish. 
They weren't parceling out taxonomy of mammals and things like that. They weren't breaking down species at the time. God apportioned supernaturally for Jonah to be spared and rescued. God appointed a way for Jonah's will to not supersede that of God's will. God interrupted his plan to end his own life so that God's will might move forward in his passion to reach the nations. So the third thing we see in this passage is that God will not allow our will to supersede his will. Your will is never greater. Nothing happens outside of the sphere of God's sovereign will. Now, I'm not advocating for being robots. There are certainly plenty of things that we do within the guidelines. My family and I, we like to go bowling. Now, we don't own a ball or anything like that, and we're not any good. We use those things called bumpers, right? And there's a lot of movement allowed in between those bumpers, but it's still heading towards a goal. And that goal is to hit some pins. And Stephanie, she's not in here, but she's actually a great bowler with bumpers, and she doesn't really use them. It's just the comfort of knowing that the bumpers are there. And so I've heard people say many different analogies or metaphors about God's word and God's will and things like that. And I, the one that I think makes sense most to us is a lot of people view God's word as a prison fence to keep bad things in. But really God's will and God's word is really like a fence around a playground to keep us in the, most source of, the greatest source of joy. And so his word and his will, while it might be inconvenient or frustrating or provoke impatience, his will and his drive and his desire ultimately is meant for our good. And so in that, we can then focus on the fact that God, when he apportions and appoints things supernaturally to occur, I believe that God very well did send a large fish-like creature to capture Jonah and supernaturally sustained him. And the primary reason I can go there supernaturally is because Jesus goes there. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 40, he says that some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is the greater Jonah. Jesus is the greater Solomon. The capturing of Jonah supernaturally within the belly of a large sea beast to carry him to bring a message of repentance foreshadowed the greater Jonah to come, Jesus, who was not just supernaturally sustained, but ultimately killed. And then supernaturally, by God's power, three days later, raised from the dead, defeating sin, death, and Satan. And so if you are here today and you do not have your hope and trust in the person and work of Jesus, I want you to understand that you are running away from a holy God who created you and who loves you and is calling you to change your mind and change your direction away from sin to the source of life, to place your hope in the life and the death and the resurrection of King Jesus. 
But my heart and conviction weighs deeply that many of us here can identify with the running from the presence of God, running from the will of God, taking the easy path. Instead of struggling and falling forward, we want to bolt and run away. I would invite you to more of God, not less. And that's why we say we believe in discipleship occurs best in authentic community because we were not meant to do it alone in isolation, but together. And in that, we can hope in the God who is passionate about the nations. We can hope in the God to usher in repentance in places where there are hard hearts. God's will, God will not allow our will to supersede his will. And so I have two questions for you to ponder this week. The first one is this. Are you running from God's will? And I want to make it more personal. When you write it down, am I running from God's will? And let me give you some basic timeline. I'm not talking about your vocation or anything else yet. What I'm talking about is God's will is that you love him with all that you are, and you love your neighbor as you love yourself, and you make disciples as you go. That's God's foundational beginning will. And so are you obeying God's will? Are you leaning into God's will or running from God's will to love him with all that you are? And so you might be saying, hey, I am running from God's will because I love these things more than I love God. That's God's invitation to admit those things, to confess and be restored. Are you worried about your future? Are you scared about your finances? You're running from God's will to trust in him as your Jehovah Jireh, your God who provides. As you're leaning into these things and as we want to begin to live into what we believe is our own sovereignty, meaning our ability to control, the will of God is for us to release and to hope. Are you running from God's will? And you might just get more pointed. I start general because I learned it from Jesus to get more specific. In what ways, and write it down this way, in what ways am I running from God's will? And maybe a question as a family, if you're, if you're married with children, in what ways are we running from God's will? This, this is, un, I mean, this is not comfortable, especially for summertime, right? But then more importantly, the second question, are you running from God's love? And some of the ways that happens is, that we don't believe what God says about us. That we are his beloved and that he sings over us and that he cares for us so much that he knows the number of hairs on our head or for some of us, lack of hairs on our head. That he's mindful of you and that he doesn't want you to walk in isolation but in community with him and his people. So what ways are you running from God? Am I running from God? And then I would ask the question again, in what ways am I running from God? Last week around 4 a.m. West Coast time, I was woken around 4 a.m., kind of some things I've been stirring over, and and it just hit me. Man, I'm running from God's love. I can begrudgingly stay somewhat in the center of God's will most of the time. I may not like it, I grumble about it, but but when when God's will is separated from God's love, that becomes very transactional rather than relational. And God's will is founded and sustained in the context of relationship. And so if we get to obligation and God's will as a list of to-dos, 
rather than a relationship to be enjoyed and enhanced, we then find ourselves walking and running away from God, just like Jonah. And so we run from the will of God, and then we run from the love of God, because God's will is his love for his creation, and even more so for his people. And I think that's one of our greatest struggles here. We, we have a lot of good things that we can do in our culture, a lot of good things. And we allow those good things to replace the best thing, often. And so this message isn't to dog on you. I mean, I love you, church. I, I, love, I know your stories. If you're a part of this church, I, I know many of your stories. And it's not like we wake up one day and you're like, I think I want to disobey God. A lot of times we get choked out by the worries of this life and things going on and frustrations and interpersonal tensions, and we don't lean into the will of God. Someone in my life who isn't in our immediate context unfriended me on Facebook. That's when you know you've really done it. Um, and I've known this person my whole life, and so I reached out to that person and I said, hey, which feels kind of silly as an adult, but it's the time we live in. I said, hey, I noticed that I've been unfriended, and I want you to know I'm not sure what I did to offend you, but I'm deeply sorry, and I would love to have the opportunity to apologize in person or talk or whatever. And the person got back to me and said, no, it's fine. Um, I'll try to refriend you again or whatever. And I was like, that's not the point. <laughs> I mean, I know how close all of our friends on Facebook are, but, um, but it was that thing of, of me like, how can we take a step of reconciliation? How can we be forgiving? How can we walk in God's will? God's will is often not very comfortable short term. It's not. It stinks. Because there's a lot of death involved in walking in God's will. Death to ourselves. God's sovereign over all creation, and God invites us to death so we can live. As Apostle Paul says, for I die daily. And that's the invitation of Christ. Die so that you might live. Die to your kingdom, to your way, to your will, and follow mine. And he's with you in your heartache, in your frustrations, in your financial struggles, in your infertility, in your loss, in your cancer, he's with you. And he's inviting you to more intimacy. So if you're running away, I urge you, in love and in Jesus' name, stop and come back. For his will is not easier, but his will is better. And if you don't believe that today, Confess that to someone because we're here to walk together through that unbelief and for our future hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are passionately committed to fulfilling your promise to bring salvation to all the nations. And Lord, I know you're raising up some of us in our midst to go to Asia or Africa or Detroit or Seattle or Canada or around the world, God. And, and I pray, Holy Spirit, as you raise up your people to go take a message of repentance and of hope that we would be a people that love you and therefore begin to love what you love. And Lord, we, we repent that we don't. And Father, I pray for any man, woman, or child that is in this room today that has lived their life running from you and are in the midst of storms of life wondering, where is my hope? I pray that they will look to Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, the hope of his return, and be forgiven and accepted by you so that they might not struggle in isolation but walk closely in your will. 
for my brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord, who are struggling with sin or love sin more or who have been rebelling and running, I, I pray in Jesus' name that you would stop them in their tracks, whatever it takes to bring them back in restoration with you. And oh Lord, I pray uh, for us who are, who are fighting the fight, Lord, who are proclaiming uh, to a lost world and, and increasingly gathering strange looks and blank stares, Lord, that our, our motivation for declaration would not just be obedience based on um, transaction, but Father, that it would be based on obedience because of joy and gratitude and who you are and what you are and what you've accomplished. And so, Father, I pray in Jesus' name you would help us, that you would convict us, that you would use us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.